Hey, good morning. How are we doing again? Nine o'clock? Oh, man. Do I love the nine o'clock service when the coffee has kicked in? You guys sound like you're doing very well. Well, it is good to be with you again this morning, Rocky Peak. Uh, welcome, to, welcome to the nine o'clock service. If you're joining us for the very first time, I want to give you a special welcome. My name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. But before I jump into our time of teaching, I want to stop and make a special acknowledgement. Today, obviously, is a very, very special day. Come on, where are you? Where are you? <laughs> so obviously, hey, I'm shouting out, we're celebrating our moms today, you know? And I want to start, I want to stop at the beginning of service, and I want to call out anybody who fills that role. I'm talking to you moms out there. I'm talking to you grandmothers out there. I'm talking to you stepmoms, foster moms, surrogate moms, mother figures, anybody who has made an impact in the life of someone by being a mom figure. I am the product of an incredibly faithful and incredibly strong mom. And so let me be one of the first people at the beginning of service to wherever you are moms, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for carrying out the role that God has called you to. My prayer for you this morning is that you feel celebrated. My prayer is that you get to go on a heck of a shopping spree. My prayer <laughs> is that the Lord continues to give you more for this high calling he's called you to do. So we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. If you open up that program you got on your way in, you've got a green and white message note sheet. That's going to be a great tool to help you follow along with the teaching. Also, it's a great tool to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you to remember. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we're going to get started. Father... We just want to stop and we want to thank you again for who you are. Father, when I stop to thank you for who you are, I can't help but reflect on your amazing character. See, Jesus, no matter what, you are always good. You are always strong. You are always powerful. Jesus, no matter what, you are always Savior. And so regardless of how we viewed you coming in, whether we've been following you for a long time, whether we've been following you for a short time, whether we haven't started following you yet, let us again all walk out of here this morning changed. Let us all walk out with a bigger view of our Jesus, that we don't see you as something that's nice or a good teacher, but we see you as king of our lives. Grow us to be a people of joyful submission. Grow us through your word, Jesus, as I pray often, and I'm excited this morning because I get to quote, I get to teach on the author of this word. Father, may you become more, and may me as the communicator become less, because my words can't change lives, but your word can. And we're grateful for you this morning, Jesus, in your son's name. Everybody said, amen. amen. Well, this morning, we're going to be continuing the series we've been in in the last several weeks. If you're joining us for the first time, let me pause at the top to do a quick recap. We've been in a series called Unfiltered, capturing a true image of Jesus. And the core heart of this series has been this, as Michael's been setting up each and every week, is that most scholars, most historians, most sociologists, just about anybody who has studied the subject would tell you that Jesus of Nazareth is the most influential person in all of human history, that Jesus of Nazareth has had the most 
impact in all of human history. But the problem we face as a culture is that as time goes on, we know less and less about who the real Jesus is. Who was he really? What did he actually say? What did he actually do? And the reality is this isn't just an issue in our culture at large, but this is an issue inside the church as well, that often our image of Jesus does not line up with the biblical image of Jesus. And so what happens is we start building an image of Jesus based on filters. Now, these filters may be our upbringing, our geography, where we were raised, how we were raised, our experiences. And so what happens is because of these filters, we're getting more and more away from who the real Jesus is. And so what we want to do in this series is we want to hit pause and we want to go back to the first century. We want to see Jesus with fresh eyes and we want to see him in context for who he really is. And how we're doing that is this series is going to be a study in one of the earliest and one of the most important documents that tells us about the life and teachings of Jesus, the gospel according to Matthew. So if, you've, if you're brand new and if, you have, if you've missed any of the teachings we've done, let me encourage you, jump on our YouTube channel, just search The Church at Rocky Peak on YouTube, or download the free Rocky Peak app from your app store of choice. There you can watch the videos to be able to catch up and add context to what we're going to be doing this morning. And so this morning, what we're going to be doing is we're going in the beginning of Matthew chapter 3. Now up to this point, what Matthew has been doing is that Matthew has been telling us how the infant Jesus came into our world. And now at the beginning of chapter 3, he's going to be doing a time jump of several years, of maybe several decades, to where now we're going to be starting at the beginning of the adult Jesus' public ministry. And so what's going to happen is Matthew is going to tell the beginning of Jesus' ministry by introducing us to a key figure of that narrative, a man named John the Baptist. Now, I'm incredibly excited to have the privilege to talk about that this morning, because aside from Jesus, John the Baptist is my hero, biblically, and I'm excited to be able to unpack why that is as the message goes along. But here's something to know about John right at the top. See, John, there's not a lot in comparison to Jesus or some of the disciples, there's not a lot written about John the Baptist. And because of that, for some of us, we might have a tendency to minimize or gloss over who John is. But just like we saw with Joseph's in the week previous, just because there's not a lot written about a person in this narrative doesn't mean that they didn't play an important role. See, there on the front of your note sheet from the Gospel of Luke, I put a verse from Jesus where he says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Now pause right there and think about this. These are the words of Jesus. This is high praise, isn't it? Incredibly high praise. Talks about the role of John in his ministry. But then look at what he says next. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, he's not minimizing the role John had to play, but what he's talking about is that John played a part in the narrative of Jesus. John didn't get to see the completion of the death and resurrection of Jesus while we do. And so today, we're going to take a look at that part that John had to play. And so if you have your Bibles, open them up. If you have your uh, apps, turn them on. 
And we're going to be going to Matthew chapter 3. Now, as you're turning there, let me set a little bit of context for us. See, in Matthew chapter 3, John is just going to appear on the scene as an adult being the prophet he's been called to. But in Luke's account of John, he gives us a little bit more backstory. And what you're going to see throughout this whole morning is that in John's life, and especially in John's message, there are many parallels to the life and the message of Jesus himself. And so in Luke, when he gives us some of John's birth stories, we see the parallels from the beginning. See, John, like Jesus, according to Luke, was a miracle birth. John wasn't an immaculate conception like what happened with Mary, but John was given to an older couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, who had been barren. He was a miracle birth. Fun fact, Elizabeth, John's mother, is related to Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's thought that they were cousins, which means that John and Jesus are related. Another parallel is that John's parents were called righteous, just like Mary and Joseph was. And if you remember, as Michael talked about, that being righteous does not mean you're perfect. But being righteous means that you have a deep love for the Lord, that you are listening, that you are following his leading even when it's hard. A third parallel is that an angel of the Lord appeared to John's father, Zechariah, much like an angel appeared to Joseph, and he told Zechariah about this bigger purpose that John would play in the story of the Messiah, that John would prepare the way for the one who was to come, the one who would be their saviors. And one thing you need to know is we need to emotionally connect with the world of first century Judaism. See, John was the first real prophet in 400 years. And we've talked about this over the last several weeks, that if you were a member of the nation of Israel at the time, you were in the waiting. And for much of you, it was a frustrating waiting because seemingly God had been silent for 400 years. Now, God's voice was still in the scriptures that they had, but God had not given them a new written word. God had not raised up a new prophet. God was waiting for the critical time, for the time to be right. And this time was now, and we see that the John is on the scene as the first prophet in this time to usher in a brand new era. And then as we look at the beginning of chapter 3, we see as Matthew introduces us to John the Baptist. So let's read together. In those days, which can also mean in that, at that critical time, in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. If you've got a pen, would you underline that? If you have an app that can highlight, would you highlight that? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. Now there's a lot there in those three verses, so I want to pause and I want to unpack this before we go any further. 
So it says that John was doing his ministry out in the wilderness. Now, for the Jewish nation at the time, this wasn't just a geographical location point, but this carried a lot of theological significance. Remember, the core of this series is we're learning to take off our 21st century hats, and we're learning to put on the hat of a Jew in the first century. How would they have interpreted what was happening? And if you were a Jew in the first century, the wilderness carried a lot of theological, theological implications. Because you knew that the story of the nation of Israel was one of renewal in God's wilderness. See, it was into the wilderness that God led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. Into the, it was in the wilderness that God established the nation of Israel. It was in the wilderness that God had given his 10 commandments, these guidelines on how to restore relationship with God and how to restore relationship with other people. And so the fact that John is in the wilderness is signaling to people that this is the beginning of a brand new exodus. And then what's amazing is John's message. And this is what Matthew wants to highlight. I had you underline it. See, John's baptism, his trademark act, was an extension of the message he was preaching. And his message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, you got to understand what repentance means in the biblical sense. See, repentance doesn't simply mean change your mind about something. See, repentance doesn't simply mean, hey, cease doing a bad thing. But biblically, what repentance means, it means a complete and total reorientation of your life. See, repentance is an acknowledgement that God has not been king in my life. Repentance is an acknowledgement that something else has been king. There has been an idol. There has been a sin. There has been another person, even maybe myself and my pride and my own ego. That has been king. And whatever is king in your life is what's going to guide your path. It's what's going to lead you. So this call of repentance was an acknowledgement that as a nation, we have sinned. It's an acknowledgement for us today that as individuals, we have sinned. We have not let God be the leader of our lives. So this call to repent is a beautiful call because it's asking an important question. What do you want your life to flow out of? Darkness or light? Repent. Reorient your life around your true king. And then I love what else he says, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this shatters some misconceptions we have about this place and this concept of heaven. See, sometimes in religious circles, we have this conception that we have given our life to Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. That's our ticket into heaven. And so what we do now is we sit and we twiddle our thumbs until he sends a cosmic subway or something to take us into heaven where we belong. But do you see how this turns that belief up on its head? It doesn't say, repent and wait for heaven. It says, repent because heaven has arrived. It says, repent because the Messiah has brought 
heaven with them into our world. In fact, we talked about this a Good Friday. Later in Matthew chapter 6, this is how Jesus taught us to pray. Pray for this world to be as it is in heaven, to continually to pray for our lives to be based around the truth that heaven has broken into earth because of the Messiah. And as we repent, as we reorient our lives around King Jesus, then what he is doing is he is creating reflections of the truth that heaven is now on earth. And again, when you dig into the original language of this, when John talks about the kingdom, and again, repent, the rule of God, the kingdom, these are Old Testament themes. John is continuing the tradition of the prophets. He's taking people back to the word of God to seek clarity from God's word itself. See, in the Old Testament, they often talked about the Lord Yahweh reigns. The Lord Yahweh is king. In Zechariah, it says that the Lord God is king over all the earth. In the book of Daniel, it talks about how God's kingdom will triumph over all earthly authorities and over all earthly rules. In fact, at the time of Jesus, there was a common prayer in the synagogues that said this, may God let his kingship rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the whole lifetime of the house of Israel speedily and soon. But what's amazing about John's message is that when he says the word near in the original language, it's not talking about a future, it's talking about the presence. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. You know what's even more amazing about the message of John is that his message is the message of Jesus. Just one chapter later, we're going to see in chapter 4 that when Jesus begins preaching publicly, his very first message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so that is the main point Matthew wants us to take away from this. And then what Matthew does, but when he goes into verse 3, is he quotes the prophet Isaiah. And what Matthew does is Matthew not only wants to show the biblical significance of who John is and what he's doing, but remember we talked about this at the beginning of this series, that Matthew's original audience was primarily a Jewish audience. Therefore, in much of Matthew's gospel, what he's going to be doing is he's going to be connecting the dots throughout the Old Testament, throughout prophecy to show that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah that we were waiting for. And so that's why he pauses and does this interlude with the prophet Isaiah. He's showing his readers this was prophesied. John is fulfilling this prophecy. This time is at hand. That means that Messiah is here and that this is a critical time. And so as we continue reading in verse 4, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so right now, Matthew gives us a description of what John looked like, and there's two reasons why he gives us this physical description. First of all, he describes that John had a very common look if you lived in the wilderness. Sometimes you kind of picture John being this like wide-eyed crazy man. 
And the reality is closer. He was more like a Bear Grylls, a live by the land, living, living out in the desert. And one thing that's interesting is what we see about John is there was nothing extravagant about his appearance. And that goes in contrast to much, many of the religious leaders at the time. Many of the religious leaders, their appearance had a lot of extravagance, had a lot of pomp, had a lot of circumstance. John is the opposite, and Matthew even describes his diet, which wasn't an uncommon diet, again, if you lived in the wilderness, but the message it's sending us is that his diet was something you could easily attain. He ate locusts, which more power to him, but apparently are high in, high in protein, is what I read. But there's another reason why... Matthew describes John's appearance as once again, Matthew is connecting the dots for his Jewish readers to let him know that the time of the Messiah has come. See, in the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi makes a prophecy that at the time of the Messiah, the prophet Elijah will come. Elijah is regarded as one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. And this prophecy was not meant to say that Elijah himself would come, but it was meant to say that one like Elijah, a great prophet to prepare the way. And what's interesting is in the book of 2 Kings, we are given a description of Elijah. And when it describes what Elijah looks like, it describes a man who wore a tunic of animal hair with a leather belt around his waist. So once again, John is tying the significance of the prophet John to the prophecies in the Old Testament. And then if you look back to your scriptures, it says that people went out to him from all of Jerusalem. See, John, as the first prophet in a long time, got quite an audience. The Jewish historian Josephus doesn't write a lot about John the Baptist. But one of the few things he does write is he describes that John attracted massive crowds. In fact, Josephus says that John's crowds were so big that some of the local authorities were worried he was going to lead a rebellion or cause an uprising. See, the people, their attention was caught by this prophet in the wilderness. They were leaving their towns, they were leaving their cities to go hear this message of repentance, this message that Messiah has brought heaven with them. And not only were they listening to it, but they were confessing their sins and they were being baptized. Now, up to this point, we don't have any precedent in Jewish life for this type of baptism. See, in the Jewish world at this point, you often had ritualistic cleansings with water, but they often had to do with being clean or unclean or respectful to the city or to the host home you were in. See, some scholars think that maybe around this time they had, they had been baptizing Gentiles, meaning a Gentile who wanted to follow after Yahweh and would reorient his life and commit to living as a Jew. So in essence, they would baptize the Gentile out of them, and they would commit to a new life. But this, a baptism that was built on repentance of sins, is completely new. And not only is this completely new, but it was unheard of for the Jewish nation, because we're going to get into this in a little bit, but they viewed themselves as God's chosen people. If you asked them, do you need to repent of your sins? They probably would have said no. Because we are God's chosen. And here, John lays the foundation that we've built on, even with Christian baptism today, that through his baptism, you are symbolizing death to an old way of life. 
and a rebirth into a new one led by Messiah. And so as we continue reading, we see that John's crowds attract some unique people. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to them, coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Now, in case you were wondering, that is not nice. <laughs> you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Would you underline or highlight that? Because that's key. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So again, a lot here, so let's unpack this. See, in Jerusalem, there was the religious establishment, the Jewish ruling council. And what we have now are representatives of the two major parties of that religious establishment, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees in particular are going to play a big part in the narrative of Jesus. In fact, often these Pharisees are the antagonists to the ministry and the mission of Jesus. So we're going to talk more about them as time goes on. But briefly, what you need to know is that the religious establishment at the time, for the most part, had corrupted the view of God. For the most part, it was about themselves. It was about them touting the fact that they were so much more religious and spiritual than everybody else, that they were better, that God loved them more, and their basis for that was they relied on their wisdom, not on the wisdom of the Lord, their oral teaching, their tradition. I've said it before that they weighted it as much, if not more, than God's word itself. And so you got to understand that them approaching the scene means that word about John was spreading. See, when John was baptizing in repentance, he wasn't building an army in the desert. He was sending them back to the city to spread that message. And so the word was spreading, and here is the religious establishment coming here going, who is doing this? We have not authorized this. We are not okay with this. Who do you think you are? And the fact that they are together is a big, big deal. Because again, to put it in first century context, the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not like each other. In fact, it's like thinking about the relationship between Republicans and Democrats today. <laughs> they didn't like each other because they had completely different viewpoints. They had different theological beliefs. They had different methods. They had different priorities, but also each party wanted to be in sole power. They didn't want to have to share that or fight with another party to get that. So there was a lot of disagreement, and so the few times in Scripture when we see them together is a big deal. Now, what's interesting, again, is the language that Matthew uses. He doesn't use, they came to be baptized, but they came to the place where he was baptizing, indicating a surveillance role. And then again, as I touched on, does John waste any time letting them have it? No. He calls them the offsprings of snakes. Think about the Old Testament. Where do we see the image of snakes? The devil. 
Snakes represent deception, represent hypocrisy, represent leading the people astray. John is picking his words very carefully here. And then he goes on to rip into them, holy way, to rip into them by indicting their actions. And he goes to a key word that I want you to underline and highlight, and that's the word wrath. See, in the entire New Testament, wrath becomes a key concept. See, wrath is God's complete and utter opposition to sin. See, understand what John is teaching us here. God is not mildly displeased by our sin. God doesn't roll his eyes at our sin and go, okay, well, you know better, or you were just trying to have fun, or I understand. See, God is vigorously opposed to sin because sin wrecked God's beloved children. Sin ruined the world in which God, that God had created for us to live in. See, wrath in the New Testament is a theme that gets touched on quite a bit, that it is God's ultimate judgment against evil. God's wrath is when he will eradicate and remove evil completely from the world. And so here, John is indicting them going, you only care about, quote, getting out of hell. You don't care about knowing God at all. You don't care about relationship. You don't care about God being king in your life. All you want is to avoid judgment. And with that, he's calling them hypocrites. And I had you underline that verse because he goes on to give an image of a tree. Produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. See, what he's telling them is you talk a big game. Your faith is all words, but there is absolutely no action to back it up. And hear me clearly. Here's the message John is making. And here's the point that Jesus will make many times throughout his ministry that the mark of repentance is a change in our actions. See, our actions is not what saved us. The power of Jesus is what saved us. But a truly changed life will then live differently. A truly changed life will now think differently. A truly changed life will now produce fruit, meaning obedience, meaning following Jesus. See, the warning for us today is to not fall into the trap that these religious leaders did. See, the truth about our faith is many of us can talk a big game. Many of us can say, yes, I want the will of Jesus in my life. But John is making a very important point. If we say that, then we need to put action towards that. If we want the will of God in our life, then we need to take steps towards obeying that will, experiencing that will, following that will. If we say, I want to look more like Jesus in our lives, great, then we need to put action towards that. We need to put steps towards that. We need to produce fruits. Because action is the fruit of a changed life, of a repentant life. And then what he does is he goes on, and again, as he indicts them, he's talking to the entire nation of Israel, and he invokes their status as a chosen people. See, the Bible talks about how the nation of Israel is a chosen 
people, how Abraham was the beginning of a new covenant. He was their father of a new nation. But what John is saying is your status is not the replacement for a repentant heart. The family you grew up in, the national heritage you have, even the fact that you attend synagogue regularly or that you keep the laws of Moses, those are all great things, but if they're not coming out of a repentant heart, it doesn't mean anything. He uses a pretty vivid picture that God can raise up out of stones better children for Abraham than, us, than what they have been. But understand that that's true of us today. See, the danger is that we may, when it comes to our faith, instead of action, we may rest on our, quote, status. We may rest on the fact that maybe I grew up in a family that always went to church. Maybe I'm the person that always attends church. Maybe I'm even serving or I'm in a life group. And hear me, those are all incredible things, but those are not what make produce fruit in our life. They are the overflow of a heart of repentance. A repentant heart is what produces fruit, not the other way around. See, the change that God brings is an inside-out change. Therefore, we do those things because of the change of our heart, not the other way. So the warning of John is don't rest on your status. Don't rest on your laurels. Don't rest on this thought that, well, God will forgive me. He'll understand. Change your hearts. Repent. And then he goes on and he gives a very vivid picture of judgment. The axe in the Old Testament represented God's judgment. And he talks about the axe cutting at a root. And the root of a tree is where the tree gets its sustenance. Again, John has been asking this question over and over. Who is king in your life? Are you as a tree getting sustenance from God or getting sustenance from sin? Because a tree that is not getting sustenance from God is going to be cut at the root and it's going to be destroyed by fire. There is no hope for such a tree. And then John continues in his last few verses. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Underline this, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's powerful. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. And so what I love about what's going on here is that John is acknowledging that he's just the messenger. John is acknowledging joyfully that the baptism that he's doing is just a symbol but the one who is to come, the Messiah, as John will see next week, Jesus himself, what he is going to do is he is going to change the people. He is going to change the nation from the inside out. He is going to bring the Holy Spirit, and through that, fire is a symbol for purification. What John is saying is that the one that is to come is king. The one that is to come is powerful. He is the only one that can forgive sins. He is the only one that can free us from bondage. He is the only one that can take us from darkness to light. He is the only one that can take us from death to life and to show his reverence to show his respect for the one to come. 
what he does is he invokes the act of a slave. See, in this culture, when it came to dealing with feet and footwear, that was the job of a slave to tie the, slave, the, the sandals together, to carry footwear was reserved for the lowest of the low. And John is using that image to invoke that, again, I'm just the messenger, but the one who is to come, he is all-powerful. And then once again, like he did with the tree, he closes by giving a vivid picture of judgment as he talks about a threshing floor, and he talks about winnowing. Now, some of you are more agriculturally based than I am. I'm a city kid, and so I had to look up what this means. So I brought a picture. So here's a threshing floor. And so what was known at the time was if you wanted to separate the grain from the husks, the first thing that you would do is you would thresh it or you would trample it by using a large animal like an oxen or a cow. And then what it would do, it would separate the grain from the husks, but they would be in the same pile. And then the next thing that would happen is one of the, one of the workers would take either a big pitchfork or a shovel, they would grab that pile, throw it up into the air to separate the elements. The heavier grain would fall to the ground to be kept. The husks, which no longer served a purpose, would be blown into the wind. And the reason why John uses this picture, one, it was a common example for the people at the time, but two, again, he's adding an immediacy and an urgency to what he's talking about. He's not talking about the distant future, because if you look back at that verse, what does he say? That the Messiah has the winnowing fork in his hand. That it's time for a new era that the Messiah has come to change everything. So that's our passage. And so in the time that we have left, what I want to do is I want to unpack the three core themes in John's teaching. And not only do I want to unpack them, but I want to look specifically into how we can apply these to the way we live, to our everyday lives. And so there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled, John's Message, Three Applications. And your first fill-in is this transformation. The first core aspect of John's message is that it's a message about transformation. And if you remember, I said this earlier, that the message of John is the message of the Messiah. So the message of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus that we teach, that we share, that we preach, is one of complete and one of total transformation. That is what the call to repentance means. And understand something, Jesus does not call us to anything less. See, it's a point I've made up here before. But the reality is that sometimes we have a small view of what it means to be changed by Jesus. Sometimes we approach it as if having Jesus in our life, what that does is that makes us slightly better people. Sometimes we view it as, well, I have Jesus in my life, and so therefore I curse a little bit less. Or I have Jesus in my life, and so I try not to yell at my barista as hard as I usually do. Which, please, they're the salt of the earth. Don't yell at your baristas, people. I have Jesus in my life, and so I'm going to try to cut back on this, or I'm going to try to do one nice thing a day. And so what happens is often we focus on the work of Jesus as being behavior modification. 
Because of Jesus, I'm either going to cease this or I'm going to try to start doing this. But John is refocusing the message of Jesus at its core and its heart. See, the message of Jesus is not one of behavior modification, but the message of Jesus is one of a complete change in our identities. That's what it means to repent. A complete reorientation of our lives is a complete change of our identity. It's a complete change of who we are. That before I was darkness, as Paul says in the book of Acts, before I was dead, before I was sinful, before I was in bondage, now because of Jesus, I'm alive. Now because of Jesus, I'm free to live a new way, to live his way, to follow his example. And what that does is that transforms every aspect of my life because Jesus didn't come to change 60% of me. Jesus didn't come to change 80% of me. Jesus came to change every last part of me. I like how one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, puts it there in your note sheet. The revolution of Jesus is in the first place and continuously a revolution of the human heart of spirit. His is a revolution of character, which proceeds by changing people from the inside out through ongoing, would you underline that word? Through ongoing personal relationship to God and Christ and to one another. It is one that changes their ideas, beliefs, feelings, and habits of choice, as well as their bodily tendencies and social relations. It penetrates to the deepest layers of their souls. Would you underline that last phrase? It penetrates to the deepest layers of their souls. <clears throat> See, understand what a big shift this is. Before Jesus in our lives, we were reflecting the values of our culture. We reflected darkness. We reflected pride. We reflected anger. We reflected division. We were reflections of sin. But now because of Jesus in our life, he has made such a massive change that we no longer reflect darkness, but we reflect him. We reflect his light. As we talked about, the message of Jesus is one of heaven coming on earth. And when we give our lives to Jesus, when he fills us with his precious Holy Spirit in the new light, what then happens is we become a reflection of heaven on earth. We become a reflection of transformation. And what's amazing about what John is laying the foundation for is that he and then Jesus after him are not only preaching a message of transformation, but they're asking all of us today to think bigger, to have a bigger view of how we see transformation. See, when we give our lives to Jesus, when we ask for the forgiveness of our sins, when he fills us with his Holy Spirit, that is the beginning, not the end of transformation. See, at the beginning of our journey with Jesus, through that beautiful act of repentance, God is just getting started. And so the rest of our lives, our following after God, our growth and maturity, it is a life that is built on continual transformation. See, the reality while we are on this side of heaven is that sin is still a real issue. The reality is all of us every day face the temptation to go back, to give in to the darkness. And it's tempting, isn't it? Because sometimes it seems faster. 
Sometimes it seems easier. Sometimes it seems pleasurable to make those decisions to go in. But the reality is that the bigness of Jesus is to remember that the only way we can resist, the only way we can live differently is by being continually transformed. See, transformation is not a one-time thing, but it is the foundation with which we live our lives. And he looks to transform all of us in every area. And so being a people of transformation means that we ask a new question in all area of our lives. And that question is this, Jesus, how now would you have me approach this? Think about how powerful that question would be in every aspect of your life. Think about asking that question when it comes to your relationships of all kind, romantic relationships, friendships, relationships with work, co-workers, neighbors. Jesus, how now, as a child of God, as someone who is being transformed, would you have me approach this relationship? How now would you have me approach my marriage or my kids or my neighbor or these coaches on my kids' teams or my professor or my coworkers? How now would you have me approach it? Think about asking that question when it comes to your time, when it comes to your finances, when it comes to your priorities. Jesus, how now would you have me approach that? Think about that question when it comes to your anger, when it comes to things like your pride, when it comes to your addictions, whether they're substances or something else. Think of the power of that question. How now? Because what you're saying is there was an old way of doing things, but now because of Jesus, there is a new way. And I want to learn from the king how to now approach these aspects in my life through transformation. The message of Jesus is a message of transformation. And finally, on this point, there in your note sheet, I like how the Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians, and whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you know that another way you can paraphrase this is that in whatever you do, and highlight that because that is key, in whatever you do, do it as a transformed person, as somebody who has been transformed by Jesus the Messiah. So that's the first point. And this first point overflows into the second and third one because we're going to be looking at specific areas that God wants to transform us in. So the second part of John's message, your second fill-in, is message clarity. Message clarity. Now let me explain what I mean by this. See, a big part of John's message and a big part of Jesus' message, a big part of the transformation in which they invited us to experience meant changing the way we viewed Jesus in the first place, meant changing the way we viewed the Messiah, meant changing the way we viewed and understood his message. We got to think about it in context that John stepped into a world of confusion when it came to the Messiah, when it came to expectations. See, instead of expecting the Messiah that the Old Testament had predicted, what had happened is, as we've been seeing in this filters in the series, many of the people had applied their own filters to what they were expecting the Messiah to be. So for many of them, they didn't recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah because they had created a Messiah in their own minds that they wanted to see happen. They wanted a war hero. They wanted a political leader. They wanted somebody to physically come down 
to march into Rome, to topple Caesar and the Roman Empire, to become a king like the other nations had, to create an earthly kingdom or an earthly realm where everyone could see. They wanted something they could feel and they could touch. Now, honestly, those desires wanting those things aren't wrong in and of themselves. But what happened is they allowed those filters to supersede the message from God's word. And so therefore, again, they didn't recognize Jesus because he's not the Messiah they had created. And it becomes dangerous territory when we follow a God or follow a Messiah of our own creation. And the danger in this for us is that this is a problem that we do today in the church. See, what can happen is much like them is when we think of Jesus, when we think of that question, who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? What does Jesus stand for? What would Jesus do in this situation, if you will? When we think about that, what happens is many of us have given in to the temptation of placing our own filters on Jesus. And so what we have is similar to the nation of Israel. We have a Messiah of our own creation. And what happens is when we have a Jesus of our own creation, then Jesus begins to look an awful lot like me. Then Jesus' story and experience is starting to get filtered through my story, my experience, my upbringing, the way I was raised, the way I was taught, my nation of origin, When I have a Jesus of my own creation, when I move away from the message of the Bible, then all of a sudden, Jesus' opinions start to agree with my opinions. Then all of a sudden, Jesus, this Jesus, never calls me out on sin. This Jesus never corrects me. This Jesus never asks for growth out of my life. All of a sudden, what I have is I have created a Messiah who is my yes man. I have created a Messiah whose role is to be my co-pilot. Remember those bumper stickers? Where I say that he's in charge, but really, I'm the one at the steering wheel. I'm the one setting the course. I'm the one calling the shot. And what I need you to do, Jesus, is sit there silently and nod in approval. See, we want a Jesus who is going to build what we've blueprinted out. But when it comes to the clarity of John's message, he wants us to understand that the Messiah is not based on our terms, but it's based on God's. What John wants us to see is we need a bigger view. We need to be transformed in how we view Jesus. I like how the author N.T. Wright puts it is that we need Jesus not to be the worker that builds our blueprint, but we need him to be the architect that designs things under a whole new framework. Because here's the danger. If I create a Jesus of my choosing, and if you create a Jesus of your choosing, and you, and then you, and on and on and on, what we have is we have thousands of different Jesuses running around. And if we don't have unity in the church, how the heck do we expect somebody who doesn't know Jesus to come and follow him? Because we're going to look at all of these options and go, well, who is the real Jesus? And so the message of John and the message of Jesus is to come back to this point of clarity. I mentioned N.T. Wright. I love the quote that I put there in your note sheet. 
You see, the reason Jesus wasn't the sort of king people had wanted in his own day is they were looking for a builder to construct the home they thought they wanted. But he was the architect coming with a new plan that would give them everything they needed, but within a new framework. Perhaps even his own people, this time not the Jewish people of the first century, but the would-be Christian people of the Western world, have not been ready to recognize Jesus himself. If Christians don't get Jesus right, what chance is there that other people will bother much with him? And so we're tasked with seeing a clear image of Jesus. And so the million-dollar question is, well, how do we gain clarity? Well, we're following the example of John. We're following the example of Jesus through this series. We gain clarity in who Jesus is by going back to God's word and seeing how he describes Jesus, how he described the role of the Messiah on his terms. See, understand a transformed people are a people who are transformed and going to the word. A transformed people are a people who are finding authority in God's word. A transformed people are a people who are saying the word is their authority, the word will dictate what Jesus is like, what Jesus said, what Jesus would do, not me. You know what's been interesting in the life of our church is the last several times I've been up here, the scripture has taken us to an application of getting in the word of God. Many times throughout this series, Michael has been up here and the scripture has taken him to an application of getting into the word of God. Rocky Peak, I believe wholeheartedly that this is a message that the God wants our church to embrace. That for the future God is preparing for us individually, but for the future that God is preparing for us as a church, that future is going to be built on the authority of God's word. If we want to leave these buildings and if we want to go and present a beautiful and accurate view of who Jesus really was, it's going to happen by knowing the Jesus of the Bible. It's going to happen by knowing the Jesus of the Word. And so my encouragement to you is learn through the Lord to fall in love with the Word because without it, we don't have clarity. See, our life is going to flow either out of confusion or out of clarity. It flows out of confusion when I create a Messiah. It flows out of clarity when his word describes Messiah to me. And so if we want to be a truly transformed people, it begins and ends in the word of God. Now, now again, you can jump on YouTube and watch some of the messages. Over in some of the messages I've done in the past, I've talked a lot about different ways to get into the word. But again, if you're looking for a starting point, let me give you one easy way to begin engaging with the word of God. And that would actually be following along with this series. What I mean by this is after you listen to the messages on the weekend, throughout your week, spend multiple times in which you spend time in the scriptures that we covered. Read them. Reread them. Think about what jumped out at you from the teachings. Now you have some more context and insight for those scriptures. And as you read those scriptures, ask some key questions. What does this teach me about who Jesus is? What does this teach me about what Jesus does? And in light of that, what does this teach me about who I now am and what I now need to do? It's an easy way, but a profound way to begin getting in the Word of God. So that's the second point, message clarity. The final one I want to get into is humility. Hands down, one of the most powerful aspects of John's character is that he found genuine joy He experienced passion in acknowledging that he was not the star of the show. 
that this is God's story, not his. And I need that because as I've mentioned up here, I'm a recovering narcissist. And what happens when you deal with pride, when you deal with narcissism, is we confuse that. We start to wonder, well, is this God's story or really is this my story? And what we see in the example of the message of John is the humility that, no, this is God's story. And so we need to put it in perspective. So let me illustrate it this way. Um, a long, long time ago, I heard a pastor named Francis Chan talking about this issue and give a beautiful example. And I love it, and I am stealing it to present it to you as my own today. <laughs> and he started by talking about one of the Rocky movies. And I've got a picture here on the screen. So it's not the first one, but in one of the sequels, there's like 15 of them, in one of the sequels to the Rocky movies, he does that famous run up the stairs again, and there's a convenient field trip of kids to come and adore him around him. And here's the point he makes. So look at the far left. Do you see that there's a little smiling girl in a green jacket? Now, now this girl is in, we have freeze this frame. This is a blink and you'll miss her moment in the movie, right? I'm betting that any of you that saw this movie had no idea this girl existed up to this point, correct? Imagine if that girl left that set, left that day of filming, and began telling everybody, hey, there's this movie coming out called Rocky and I am the star. There's this movie coming out, and it's all about me. It's about my story. I'm the focus. Everybody should pay attention to me. Now, we would sit there and go, that's absurd, right? Because clearly, that's not the focus of the movie. That's not even the focus of this still. But also, if she was focused on that, then what would happen is she would miss out on the bigger story that's playing around her. You can pull that slide off. Now, here's the point that I want to make with this. Often, when we show a lack of humility, that's what we do with God. We decide, I am the star of this. God is the co-pilot. I am the leader. I am the king. See, when it comes to humility... The issue of biblical humility is not thinking bad about yourself. It's not, oh, I'm a horrible person, I don't have gifts, I don't have that. That's not what humility is. C.S. Lewis famously said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. See, the issue of humility is an issue of lordship. The issue of humility is answering the question, who is king in your life? Who has absolute control of your life? Who calls the shots? Are you king of your life? Is a sin king of your life? Is another person? Is a status? Is a symbol? Is your desires? Is your pain? Is that king of your life? Meaning, is that where your life flows out of? Or is Jesus king of your life? See, where this plays out for many of us, is that many of us don't wake up in the morning and go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to live in overt pride and narcissism against King Jesus. But what happens, how this plays out, is for many of us, we would say there's areas of our life in which giving God control is easy. But it's in those areas in which giving God control where we find it difficult is where we see our lack of humility. Let me give you an example of this. Let's talk about your desires. Let's talk about those things that you want more than anything. And in a room this size, there's many different things. Some of you want a type of relationship. 
Maybe it's a romantic relationship that you desire. Maybe it's the restoration of a relationship. Some of you want that job. Maybe it's a job or this dream job that you see yourself. Some of you, maybe it's the dream family or the dream house. Some of you, it's maybe the status. It's the way people see you. It's the accolades. Whatever that may be. See, for many of us, we sit there and go, okay, God, you're going to lead it. But the reality and the rub happens when God starts leading in a path different from what we want to follow, in a path different from what we want to do. And for many of us, our lack of humility becomes in that choice, well, do I follow God or do I stay on target? Do I follow God and do I stay on this path? See, God, I want that job, but the only way it's going to happen is the way I imagine it happening. So stop trying to lead me off. God, like, I really want this relationship, so I'm tired of waiting. Would you hurry up and make that happen? Because I'm willing to go compromise. I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to do that. God, I really want that job. I really want that status. So would you go ahead and provide this? Or you know what? Okay, my family is going to understand. See, and what happens in that moment is we show where we stand with humility. Because when push comes to shove, when God is trying to be the architect, we are not letting him. We keep showing him our blueprint and say, hey, man, stick to this. And gosh, I've been guilty of that so many times in my life. And as somebody who's been guilty of that, I can tell you firsthand, where does it lead? Frustration, hurt, disappointment, and anger. And so this message of humility, the question becomes, how did John have such humility? And what we see in his life, what we see in his message, what we see in the example of Jesus was that when he didn't understand, when he didn't have all the answers, John didn't place his trust in receiving an answer, but John placed his trust in the character of God himself. John placed his trust in what he knew of God, in what he knew of Jesus, and he made the difficult choice, but the profound choice, I'm going to trust in what I know. Look at your note sheet from the Gospel of John. This is fast-forwarding a little bit to Jesus' ministry, and John's followers, many of them had been going to join Jesus. And some of his followers, they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, the man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but man sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. And finally, and please underline this, he must become greater. I must become less. John may not have fully understood the path in front of him. John may not have fully understood or have received the answers that he was always looking for, but he chose to trust in the character of God and the character of Jesus. And so let me ask you today, is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Is there an aspect in your life in which you have wrestled with God when it comes to humility? Is there an area in your life in which you have been refusing to be transformed? Is there an area in your life in which you haven't been allowing God in? Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you this morning? And are the words of John ringing true that in that area, we must allow God to become greater and we need to become less?
But again, remember this example of John, that humility is not a place of disappointment, but humility is a place of joy. Humility is a place of passion. Humility is an acknowledgement that, God, you are bigger than I could ever possibly imagine. And if this is what you want to do, all right, let's do it. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And as we close our time, as we go into a final song, as we receive our gifts and offerings, I would love to encourage this to be a time between you and God. This to be a time in which you lay down your arms, so to speak, and say, God, I've been wrestling. God, I've been trying to hide this area. God, I haven't wanted to give up my anger. God, I haven't wanted to give up my hopes. God, I haven't wanted to give up my desires. And maybe God isn't asking you to give up some of those good things, but he wants to lead you in a different way or wants to show you timing. May this be a place in which you lay down your arms and you experience transformation. You experience clarity. You experience joy in the work of Messiah in your life. Let's pray. Father, we are here asking you to bring the change that you bring. Father, it's impossible to be in the presence of God and not be changed. And we acknowledge that and we thank you for that. And so today, God, I pray that as we wrestle with you, that if you're speaking to us, if you're revealing an area in our life in which we are reviewing transformation, an area in our life in which we are following our leadership and not the leadership of the Messiah, an area in which we need to grow in humility, Father, we pray that today we be filled with the courage and hope to give that up to you, to say, Father, you are king and you will lead us to a deeper place of passion, of joy, of hope by submitting to your lordship. And let that be the mark of our transformation by being a church of submission, by being a church that is filled by joy ahead of that. As we sing this final song and we talk about the fact that you love us, if we don't have the answers, if we don't know about your timing, if there's things we still don't know, remind us about the most important thing, that we are loved by our Messiah and we are saved because of him. Bless these gifts and offerings that we're going to receive. In your son's name, everybody said, amen. Let's stand together. Hey, so as we leave this place, let us leave in the joy of the fact that the Messiah, Jesus, is transforming us. Let us leave in the joy that he's transforming us to be more like him, to be more of a reflection on heaven on earth. Let us leave in the joy that that is our opportunity as we go to a world that doesn't yet know him to show, to point, to proclaim to the real Jesus, the risen Jesus, Jesus our King. Amen? Amen. Hey, if you would like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, over here in the worship center along this wall, same over in the ridge along that same right wall, there's some men and women from our prayer ministry. They're wearing badges to identify themselves. They would love to pray with you. If the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you this morning, if there's something that you're struggling with, is there something you want encouragement on, they would love to stop and pray with you. Hey, next week, you got to be here, as I often say, because it's getting good. See, next week, Michael's going to be back, and as we continue this narrative of John the Baptist, now Jesus is going to be on the scene. He's going to be baptized by John himself, and there's going to be this beautiful declaration from heaven itself that says, this is my son with who I am well pleased. And we get to dig into that and see the implications of what that means for all time. Hey, once again, moms, are you still out there? Are you doing well, moms? Hey, one thing we've done to have a little bit of fun this Mother's Day is right outside on the patio of the worship center. So if you're in the ridge, come on over and join us. We've set up a backdrop for you to be able to take some selfies with your family. We'd love for you to hashtag them with Rocky Peaks so we could see them. You can get beautiful pictures. Like, take a look at this family right there. They're, oh, 
They switched the picture on me. There it is. <laughs> you get some beautiful, like, there's a good-looking bunch right there. Hey, have some fun with it. We'll see you guys next week.